My name is Jesse. I'm a pastor here at Double Grace, and it's good to be with you. Um, if I've not met you or if you're new here, I'd love to get to, get to meet you, especially if you have questions about uh, the faith, about a sermon, uh, whatever it is. I'd love to chat. I'm here for you. So we're in the midst of a sermon series on First Peter. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to turn to First Peter, where you can look on in your bulletin. Um, we've been talking about how God gives us grace in the exile. That we as the church, as the people of Christ, are an exiled people, meaning that we don't belong. And yet God gives us grace in the midst of that exile to live in light of the salvation that he's already given us, but also that will come again. And so our section this week begins in verse 10 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And First Peter starts it concerning this salvation. I gave you verses 8 and 9 just for a little bit of context. We'll back up and read that in just a second. What Peter wants his people to know is what is this salvation? Like how does it work? Where does it come from? Who does it? And that, that may seem a little elementary for some of you, especially if you've been around the church for a while, if you know who Jesus is. But friends, this is what we do week in and week out. We talk about what is the gospel, about what is salvation, what has Christ done for us. This is the most important thing that we can do to reckon with what is this salvation. So let's see what Peter has to say about this salvation. We'll begin in verse 8, just again to back up for some context. So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it reveals salvation that it reveals Jesus. Oh Lord, we, we long, we long for Jesus this morning. And so would your spirit, your spirit of power, would you anoint, anoint our hearts that we might hear you speak to us. Transform us, oh Lord. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at, um, what is this salvation? And, and Peter's, Peter's desire here, uh, he's writing as a Jew. And he wants his people, the, the recipients of this letter, to know that this is not some new religion that he is speaking about. He's, he's not arguing for a brand new religion around Jesus. No, he wants to make an argument that this is actually the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. That there is one big, one big story of salvation that Jesus completes. That Jesus completes. That's what Peter is interested in doing in this next passage. And so we're going to look at first the backstory of salvation. The backstory, that's point one. And we'll look at the witness to salvation, the witness, and then finally the surprise of salvation. 
The backstory, the witness, and the surprise. So first, the backstory of salvation. So he says, concerning the salvation in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied. We're going to get a lot of prophets today. Okay, the prophets, you know those big books in the middle of your Bible that you never look at? You have no clue what they what they are? That's what we're, I'm going to try to give you a lot of text from them so we hear the prophets speaking and how they relate to the salvation. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. He's referring to the, the writing of the Hebrew Scriptures. And you probably know the prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But Peter also has in mind the prophet Moses. Moses, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Or David, who writes much of the Psalms. He says, these prophets, they anticipated, they foreshadowed the salvation that was coming. They searched and inquired carefully. So the prophets are the backstory to this salvation. Now, if you start watching a television show, you don't start in the middle. You have, have you ever had this, uh, this experience where um, you or your spouse starts watching a show without the other, right? And then one night, you know, you're five episodes in, all of a sudden they decide to sit down next to you and say, well, what's happening? <laughs> That's not how it works, right? We don't start in the middle of a series. If you, if you start reading Lord of the Rings with, with the return of the king, I mean, you'll get some things out of it. Like, why are we on the, who is this Sauron? What's this battle, right? You need to begin any series at the beginning, right? Can you imagine reading Harry Potter at like book six? That's a crime, right? It's a crime. And so what, what Peter is saying is you need to know the backstory. There is a story behind what Jesus has done. First Peter is a sequel. The New Testament, the whole New Testament is a sequel. It's telling you what's next. Um, and so like a good author, Peter is referring back. What happened before, right? What happened before? And now, in this backstory, what he's saying is that these prophets contributed significantly to, to foretelling what was to come. And they added a couple of different elements that are really important. One of them was that they identified the problem. In the first part of a story or a, or a show, you need a compelling problem, right? For Lord of the Rings, it's this ring of power. It's going to destroy the world. Harry Potter, why in the world is Voldemort trying to kill an elementary school kid, Right? And it keeps you reading. It defines, it articulates the problem. And that's what these prophets did. They articulated the problem exquisitely. Now, by the way, um, there have been a number of scholars who have recently traced back the assumptions of the, the political left, the progressive left, which in the U.S. ironically seems very hostile to religion, especially conservative religion. The irony is, is that when you trace back those ideas, like justice, like they actually go back to the prophets. They go out to like, like the Bible is one of the primary sources for justice and injustice and systemic oppression. There's a British historian, uh, Tom Holland. He's not a Christian, but he has this huge book called Dominion. And he has this great quote. He says, um, ironically, Karl Marx is, he's like, 
trying to trying to poo-poo on on religion and Christianity. The very terms that Karl Marx uses to describe what's happening to the working classes: enslavement, oppression, greed. Like he's using a Christian vernacular. It's, it's ironic, right? The, 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 this, these ideas of justice actually come in the prophets. Isaiah begins, when you begin the book of Isaiah, Isaiah starts and God says, hey, I want you to stop your worship services until you restore justice. Like, stop your oppression and seek justice. That's how Isaiah, Isaiah starts. And yet, for the prophets, they don't say the primary problem is systemic. They don't say the primary problem of humans is in the system. They say there's something that's deeper. Like injustice and oppression, it's a symptom. It doesn't get to the heart. So what do they say? Well, they they diagnose two problems about the human condition. They say, first of all, human nature is irretrievably corrupt. Jeremiah says, the human heart is deceitful. Above all things, and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17.9. And the sickness was rooted in the widespread rejection of God, the Creator. Like, we were made to do life in light of God, to obey God. And the prophets say, the, the reason why society, why injustice is happening, is because we've left God, the Creator, and we've become sick. Isaiah will say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord gives Ezekiel this vision of a valley of dry bones. And he says, that's what your heart is like. That's what the people have got is death. Death. But the second problem, so we have this human nature is irretrievably corrupt. The second problem is the result of the first. The judgment was coming. That God would not abide this injustice, this injustice of not worshiping Him. That God was going to visit justice upon the world. And so what, what the prophet saw is that human nature is corrupt and God's judgment is coming because of it. That's the problem that they saw. The backstory. That's the problem that needed saving. Now these prophets, they didn't just come up with this on their own. That leads us to our second point. So that's the backstory: is that we are in desperate need of help. The second point is there's a witness to that salvation, a witness. Salvation is a very Christian word, isn't it? If you've been in the church in any length of time, it's easy for salvation to kind of lose its luster. Or, or, or maybe you're not a Christian at all. And salvation has this like weird, it feels like this outmoded religious thing. But salvation, I, th- I think there's a hunger within every one of us that we know that we need salvation. We know we need it. Uh, Luc Ferry is a, a French philosopher. And he has this brief little book called A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living. It was a bestseller um, in France for a long time. And two things you need to know about Fury is that he's not a Christian at all. In fact, he was a minister of education when France made its secularization law where you can have no religious symbols in the public schools. So Fury is not a fan of religion. And yet in this book on philosophy, listen to how he describes these philosophies. He goes from Plato all the, to, to Nietzsche to Foucault. Listen to what he says. He says, 
The great philosophies can be defined as doctrines of salvation. Doctrines of salvation. That's what philosophy is about. It's trying to figure out how can we be saved? How do we deal with the fact that every one of us dies? How do we deal with the fact that like, how do we, how do we give life any meaning? These doctrines of salvation. So, salvation is not just something that, that Christians deal with or God, it's something that we all face. Right? Politics, medicine, tech are also a search for salvation. You guys heard of the, the transhumanist pro- project? Uh, Silicon Valley, one of the weirder things that's across the bay from us. They're trying to figure out a way that they can kind of like harness consciousness that will surpass death. Right? It, it's a search for salvation. And the more money and brilliance you get at it, the weirder it gets. Right? Search for salvation. So there's so many witnesses to salvation. Who should we listen to? Why should we listen to these prophets about what salvation is? Well, Peter says, don't just listen to the prophets for themselves. The prophets were not making this up. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, The prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Uh, back in Luke Fury's book about the different philosophies, the different doctrines of salvation, he says, you can really divide all salvation into, is, are you looking to God? For salvation or not? And he says philosophy is, is the not. It's, it's a looking within yourself, your reason to save yourself. And these prophets say, no, that's not where they're looking. They're looking to the Spirit. They're looking to the Spirit. They're not looking to themselves. And you see, the Holy Spirit is the primary witness to salvation. For three reasons. We're going to look at three levels of how the Spirit is the witness. First of all, he's a, he was a witness behind the prophets. The, prof- the prophetic diagnosis that we are sick, we are irretrievably corrupt, right, and that we're under judgment, it comes from the Holy Spirit. These prophets were listening, listening to the Spirit. The Spirit witnessed the actual problem inside of the human heart. In Second Peter, Peter will exp- explain that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to the second way the, the, the Spirit is a witness. This, this word, this scripture, is the product of the Spirit. We believe that this, the Bible, is God's holy word, the, the, the Spirit breathed this into these prophets. And so this is a witness to salvation. It's a story of salvation. It's a story of salvation. But then in our passage, also look at verse 12. It says that those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The Spirit not only witnesses the prophets and through the scriptures, he also witnesses through the preaching of the word. That what the Spirit does is that when, when the Word is preached, He comes and He makes it reasonable, acceptable to our human hearts. The Spirit is working in our hearts. The role of the Spirit, says Jesus, on the night before He died, Jesus gave His disciples some very somber words about their life ahead. He said, I'm going to send you a helper. 
the Holy Spirit. And what he's going to do is to witness to me. He's going to witness to me. You see, the Spirit is the witness to Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does. If you want to know, how do you know who this is something is of the Spirit? It exalts Jesus. It exalts Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. It showcases Jesus. Showcases it. The Spirit of Christ, Peter says, that the prophets predicted this salvation. And as, as Peter says that, it's the Spirit of Christ, he's doing this, this, uh, this paradigm shifting Trinitarian formula. He's looking back into the Old Testament and saying, hey, you know the Spirit of the Lord who is back there? That's not just any Spirit. It is the Spirit of Christ. He's making a radical argument here that Jesus, that Jesus was in the Old Testament. In fact, that the Old Testament is all about Him. The salvation the prophets promised was all about Jesus Christ. And it was the Spirit of Christ who was leading these people to Jesus. So friends, an application. Like, are you listening to the Spirit? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? The Spirit speaks to both believer and unbeliever. You know why? Because both need Jesus. The believer still needs Jesus. And so we need the Spirit in our hearts like a flashlight to point us to Jesus over and over and over again. If you've not repented recently, you probably haven't been listening to the Spirit. Because that's what the Spirit does. He brings conviction of sin. If you haven't worshipped just extemporaneously, spontaneously, because of the salvation that you've been given in Jesus, it probably means you haven't heard the Spirit in a while. And that makes sense, friends. There are so many witnesses to different salvations that, that surround us, that hit us all through the day, right? On the internet, advertising, Instagram, TikTok, all of them bombarding us with some, some promise of salvation. It can be so easy to tune out the Spirit and miss the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have to quiet our lives to hear the Spirit. And sometimes we miss the Spirit because we don't even believe the Spirit is working. But friends, the Bible is clear. The Spirit is always working. You, you have not because you ask not. You have to have faith that the Spirit is, is engaging. The Spirit is always moving towards you, friends. You may not feel it, but he is. He is. And he, the Spirit is always working in your coworkers, even in your family members who do not know Jesus. You know why? Because the Spirit is wooing them to himself. That's what the Spirit does. He's a witness to salvation. And every human heart knows that it needs salvation, whether it recognizes it or not. The witness of salvation, the Spirit. Finally, the surprise of salvation. The surprise of salvation. So verse 12 ends on a strange note. It says in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, that is, the prophets, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Wait a second. Things into which angels long to look. That's, that's a little bit weird. 
The Greek word there for, for look, um, it's parakupto for you Greek scholars, and it means to strain to see, to strain to see, to stoop down so you can look closer. And so you get this image of, of the angels, like, like they've heard about salvation and they want to look at it closer. It's like when you're walking on the street. Some of you don't walk. You need to. Um, Jesus walked. So as you're walking on the street, right, and you see something out of the corner, corner of your eye, maybe a beautiful flower, and you stop and you strain to see. Why? Because you, you need a closer look. That's, that's this word. The angels are straining to see this. Why? Why would they be straining to see this? That's strange. Well, let's back up. We've, we've noted the backstory, the witness of salvation. But what? We've not talked about, like, what did salvation? Like, what was salvation? What accomplished salvation? And Peter puts it in such a unique way in verse 11, if you look back there. It says, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He sums up the predictions of, of the prophets as this, these two words, sufferings and glories. Now the term Christ, as you probably know, it just simply means Messiah. So the sufferings of the Messiah was promised. So we know who saves, it's this Messiah. But how? And Peter gives a very interesting description, but through suffering. Through suffering. Why? Why suffering? It's surprising. Why suffering? Why doesn't God, instead of saving through suffering, God, like God could have saved, like David, when he marched through Jerusalem on the ark, like there was this huge parade, right? It's this victory. And the Messiah is supposed to be David's son. So why couldn't God save his people through this kind of parade victory? Why suffering? Why suffering? Actually, Jesus sums up salvation in the same way. After his death on the cross, his resurrection, he comes back. And on the road to Emmaus, these disciples are asking the questions like, why did Jesus die? They're deflated. They don't understand. They saw Jesus die. And Jesus comes to them. He's, he's anonymous. And he says, Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Did you hear that? It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and then come into glory. So again, suffering and glory. Glory we get. We get that, but why suffering? Why would God save his people with a suffering Messiah? Well, the sufferings of the Messiah are all over the Old Testament. They're all over. We hear it in the Psalms, as the psalmist mourns the oppression that he is living in. We hear it in Job, right? Sufferings. We see it in the life of Jeremiah. But the reason for this suffering, why suffering? is explained best in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I'm going to read a good portion of Isaiah 53 because I want you to hear this. What is the What are the prophets saying about salvation? Why suffering? Listen, this is Isaiah 53, verse 5. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. His soul makes an offering for guilt. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Did you hear that? Why suffering? Well, remember the, the prophetic problem, right? If, if there is a judgment coming for all who sin. Here is the remedy for that problem of judgment. God says, I'm going to anoint a servant and I'm going to put all the guilt on him. He will pay for everyone's, suffer, for everyone's suffering that they deserve. The wrath of God, the anger of God, the judgment they deserve. I'm going to pour it all out on him. And then these, there will be a transfer. These will be righteous and innocent. Justice will be meted out by choosing a representative but here's the surprise. And this is where the Jews didn't see it coming. God says, not only am I going to do that, I'm going to do that to me. You see, the Messiah, the sufferings of the Christ were actually going to be God himself. That is the surprise of salvation. God says, I am going to send my son incarnate incarnate in man. And I am going to met out all the wrath, all the judgment that my people and even the nations deserve on Jesus Christ. That's the astounding claim of Jesus. The Jews didn't see that coming. They didn't see the fact that God himself would pay for their sins. That he would pay for their judgment. Uh, the British historian I was talking about, Tom Holland, this big book called Dominion, he says, he, he ends it like this. Listen to this. To be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. By the way, Holland is not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He says, to be a Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it always has been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It has the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. The audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse, that is Jesus Christ, the glory and the creator of the universe. That's what we believe. That's what we believe saves us. That's what we believe saves us. And this is what the prophets were saying over and over again. This salvation is coming. But remember, it was the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. There is more and more glory to come. More and more glory to come. Listen to Edmund Clowney. Edmund Clowney is a, a biblical, biblical theologian who died uh, about 20 years ago. He says, The final vision of the Old Testament is not of dry bones in Death Valley, 
Rather, it is renewal beyond conceiving. The prophets picture the restoration of all that has been lost. But the restoration does not look back to recover the past. It looks forward to God's final renewal. God's fulfillment will transform everything. There will be this glorious transformation of the whole cosmos. So why do the angels peek down? It's because they love this so much. They see the glory that God saves us through putting his own son into punishment. Um, my sister and brother-in-law came to visit us uh, last week, and they arrived on the very day that the smoke came in. So I was so excited to have them here to see the beauty of this place, the beauty that I, like the reason I wanted to come here, one of the huge reasons. At the top of my, I live on a hill, as most people in the Bay Area, and when you when you get to the top of the hill, there's this gorgeous view, gorgeous view of the Bay, you can see San Francisco, you can see uh, the valley, you can see parts of Hayward, a little bit of Oakland, it's gorgeous. And yet when I took them up there, this was on like Thursday. And I took them out, like they can barely see anything. And it feels like this dreamlike quality. Like, like, like it didn't look real. And it was such a letdown. Such a letdown. They didn't see the beauty. They didn't see the glory. And friends, that's like what the prophets saw. They could see like some shadows. They could see the arc of the, the landscape, but they couldn't see it in its full color. And I, the smoke cleared away on Sunday, right? On Sunday, this last Sunday. And I took them up to, to, to Oakland Zoo, as, as you do here. Um, and we went up the gondola to, to the top of the mountain. And they got to see the whole area without a smoke for the first time. And they're like, this is gorgeous. This is glorious. Friends, what Peter is saying is that's what we get every day the gospel, that we have seen this beautiful story of salvation. It is this view that transforms you. It can't not transform you by the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. That's what this salvation is. So I want to give you a quick application as you think about uh, two applications, really. First of all, how is your listening to the Spirit? How is your listening to the Spirit? Uh, if you're from a Reformed background, the Spirit is like the neglected uh, member of the Trinity. We don't really talk about the Spirit. It's a little scare, scary to us. But the Spirit is meant to be our life. The Spirit is meant to be our life. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. So friends, let me encourage you. That even as you, as you read the Bible, ask the question, Spirit, what do you have for me today? And second of all, second of all, do you cherish the story? Do you cherish the story? Peter cherishes the story. He knows the angels even long to look at this. And we are in a, in a more privileged like stance to see the salvation of Jesus Christ. We're in a more privileged stance than even the angels. Do you cherish it? Do you see that view? Like, look out at the bay, and you see the beauty of what God has done for us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great salvation, the surprise that you paid the punishment that we deserve. 
oh Father. And we pray for your spirit to lead us, that you would make us like you. You would make us a people that cherishes this story, oh Lord, concerning this salvation. May this salvation be our story. Oh Lord, we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.